0: I don't know any movie that flashes up Moloch in big scary letters. Like I'm pretty much in. That's wild.
1: <laughs> yeah, a Tower of Babel sequence and a Horror of Babylon sequence. I mean, I'm all there. Yeah, that's, this appeals to us. <laughs> it's
2: very on brand for who we are.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, lo- I love it. I love it when
0: stuff gets super weird and biblical. Yeah, we'll of you'll note
1: that my username is the Whore of Babylon.
0: Oh,
2: uh, we just see horror of. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's what I and that's what I see when I see his face. Usually, just wanton hussy.
1: Oh no. Well hello everybody welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast. We gather around a table, well those two gather around a table and I gather around the internet. And we discuss the films that you'll never discuss the film say, Of course, unless it's January when it's anti-trash. And we're beginning an anti-trash marathon of uh, elevated, I don't know if we're going to use that word, or high art science fiction. Uh, And our first selection this uh, month is the film Metropolis directed by the great Fritz Long. I'm still Dustin.
2: I'm still Arthur. Uh,
0: And I am Dalton. I was going to say something funny, and I decided not to.
1: (laughs) And uh, yeah, here we are. We're going to do this thing. And in case you're tuning into the Good Trash Genrecast for the very first time, we just want you to know, friends and neighbors, that uh, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show. And if you have not yet seen the 1925... Seven. Seven film uh, Metropolis, we are going to spoil the ending of it. (laughs) I don't know why that's a thing, but it might be. Uh, So, yes, indeed, Mitt Romney saves the world. But we're going to avoid spoilers (laughs) for the most part. it's funny
0: if you've seen the movie
1: yeah (laughs) we're gonna avoid spoilers for the first part of the show for the most part and what that means is we'll have a spoiler free synopsis spoiler gentle thumbs up thumbs down reviews we'll do a little exercise called expanding the syllabus which will be again spoiler gentle and then we'll have some kicking music to let you know that all spoiler bets are off and that we're in analysis territory and that's when all those you know Spoilerific spoiler riches may take place so um with that i believe you've been warned hi friends are you ready to do this i mean yeah i should should guess say. that was kind right, of a y- weird y- 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 it's a new, <laughs> yeah it's
0: a new yeah it's a new thing is it because you can't look at our faces and see that we're ready
1: i suppose so <laughs>
2: just because we both sleep while you're here doesn't mean we're sleeping right now <laughs>
1: okay fair enough well i guess with that arthur let's go ahead and start with that synopsis if you don't mind
2: after being awoken to the realization that his father's city is built on the back of laborers, Fredder seeks out the underground workers to figure out a plan of equality. But his father won't have it, and he enlists the help of the thin man and the inventor to keep the status quo.
1: Dun, dun, dun. And, uh, yeah, this is a silence movie, German expressionist sensation. It is... On many syllabi, I'm sure. In fact, when I, once upon a time when I had to write a introduction to film studies syllabus uh, for my MA uh, exams, mm-hmm. I included this film. I included the short version, not the long two hours and 25 minute version that we all watch. But uh, yeah, um, it's a movie that does that. But with that being said, now, are are you guys both first time watchers?
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah, never seen it, never gotten to it.
1: Well, Dalton, then I'll just go ahead and go to you first. What do you think of your first experience the long version of Metropolis?
0: And it sure is a long movie. That's 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 no kidding. Uh I like it. Yeah, it's got pistons and gears and industry <laughs> and it's got a big sci-fi skyline that looks a lot like Dallas to me because it's just so labyrinthine and nonsensical, much like that city. Uh, oh, I thought you
1: meant the uh, soap opera.
0: No, 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 no. I mean I mean the terrible city that nobody should ever go to. Um yeah, I don't know. I like this movie. I I think its analysis uh, is pretty thin. I think it's a very naive child's view of the world. Uh no offense to Dr. Lang. I don't think he was a doctor. I don't know why I called him a doctor. We
1: we 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 give him the uh, good trash Honor cast honorary doctorate
0: are are we okay yeah since he's a titan of industry or a titan of cinema we can go ahead and do that uh i don't know i'm more interested in this book that his wife wrote uh, do you know about this him and uh, his wife thea von harbo Harba? anyway they developed the story together but she wrote like a novelization of the movie Ooh. like 2 years prior to it coming out and apparently mm-hmm. it's got like way more occultism and magic <laughs> i'm like okay Ooh. i want to hear about this book yeah uh i don't know i again i i think its its themes are interesting i think its analysis of the world is even you know by a century ago standards pretty pretty thin and yeah i obviously there are limits to what you can do in in the silent motion picture medium you know you can only say so much without any actual words but it does read to me like a a a pretty unnuanced um and naive view of the world but i i i appreciate what it's going for as far as you know what its, it's central me- messaging about uh the haves and the have nots and uh, this the sort of cycles of industry that uh, oppress people throughout history, like I think all of that stuff's pretty compelling i just i think its answers are a little meh, i don 't know about that uh it looks incredible though, holy crap, does this movie look great uh the The sequence where freder like first finds the laborers at work and the the big mo- i get i 've alluded to it already the the Moloch sequence that 's wild that 's a movie making woof uh the robot stuff is all really cool uh but but you know the more i learned about the production of this movie the more i was like uh excuse me uh dr lang as we decided to give him that honorary doctorate uh do you not see how this abusive movie set that you're managing is uh exactly the sort of story (laughs) you're telling on the screen i know you've just basically kidnapped 500 poor children from berlin and throw them in freezing cold water uh but, but maybe you should consider oh, this is exactly the movie you're saying what your movie says is bad
2: real life imitating art moment huh
0: exactly uh <laughs> apparently the uh the robot costume is just like a terrible death trap to wear uh the actor uh who is in it she just got like absolutely beat to shit by the the robot suit and she couldn't breathe in it i mean all, all the kinds of crap that you hear about a difficult movie production it all happened on on this set so you know, it's weird to me that, that le- learning that really did like throw a level of cognitive dissonance on the movie that like made its naivety even more frustrating for me. So I like a lot of things about it. I think it's probably important for historical reasons for us to talk about it and watch it. Like I, I'm glad that we were uh, that, you know, the movie going masses that we are. I'm glad that the a full version or close to full version of this movie was discovered in 2008. Right. That's the version we want, the Argentinian version.
2: I think in yes. 2010
0: there's an even more complete version uh, than the one we watched. I think yeah, like two years later they they had another another cut come out. But so I, yes, uh, it's good that this long version exists. I think it's probably too long. And again, I, I think a lot of movies have tried to say similar things and maybe done a better job of saying them. But it does have some incredible imagery. I mean, it the the the, the wall of eyeballs. That come on, that's great what an image uh there's just yeah i I, we could spend most of this episode just talking about all the cool stuff that's in this movie so i will go
1: ahead and leave my review there all right well thank you very much for that mr dalton stewart what do you say mr arthur gordon
2: um i kind of echo dalton i think a lot of in a lot of ways I, i mean yeah it's it's stunning to look at right i mean from from the onset you can tell why this movie is as visually influential as it is uh there's that really cool matte painting of the workers going down in the elevator, mm. which is a really cool thing. I mean, there's just so many things in here that are, you can see where the DNA is gone or uh, what it has inspired, obviously. Uh, and so I think that's you know really cool uh, about it. Uh, it. It it is too long. I, I think that uh, it, it's interesting. Dalton and I were talking about this off air, but a lot of the restored stuff that we do get uh, is mostly just some more. Uh, either establishing shots or a little bit of expository stuff that really doesn't add to the narrative. There are some narrative components that are added in a few places, but a lot of that footage is just more shots of people running from either different angles or just more running. Um, And so I don't know how necessary it is. Uh, So that being said, I I think narratively this is just, I think it speaks to what you're saying is that narratively it's just kind of flat. There's Mm -hmm. not a lot of meat here with, with what they set up as far as a premise and how far it takes to get where they're going with it, it just feels like pretty streamlined. Uh, I know on Letterboxd, I feel like this is a built self-indulgent, but not in a look-how-good-we-are way. Uh, the anecdote is kind of that uh, Long had gone to Hollywood and saw that filmmakers they were doing bigger bold things in cinema and his idea was well we have to do a big movie Mm. and this feels like we're going big just for the sake of going big
0: which is arthur we talked a little bit about this off off the mic but that's kind of the critical reaction it got when it came out in the 1920s was i don't know if movies need to be this big and as much as we lament where movies are at these days it's sort of weird that it is the same complaint everybody's like oh maybe just the people in a room talking to each other would be nice
2: yeah uh so all that being said i i I like our cast i think we got some good people look great on screen the thin man looks really intimidating kind of looks like boris karloff which is cool uh the robot suit looks cool um the the weird doctor inventor guy is creepy uh he's cool um yeah all the sets the guy who's like manually working a clock thing which i couldn't figure out what was it was it's cool, but he had to get those hands into those positions, and he couldn't be stopped. No, uh, the machine will blow up. If he so, stops. yeah, all that stuff's great. All that stuff's cool. I mean, this movie looks incredible. Uh, I can, I mean, you can see why it, I think, is so beloved for for that. And so, that's cool. I mean, we there are a lot of movies that are held up as classics just because of the style and what they look like and what they did visually. And I think that's nothing to scoff at because I think this was a massive undertaking and it has paid off because it's arguably one of the most influential movies of all time. And yeah. so I'm glad we finally, I finally got to watch it. I'm Glad we got to do it for the show. But uh, Dustin, I know it's not your first time. I know you have a shirt you were planning on wearing uh, to an in-person recording. And so uh, let us know, uh, what are your thoughts on Metropolis?
1: I like Metropolis a lot, but I prefer by far the 115 minute version of this. Um, it was fun to watch again with all the little bits. And, of course, they're decided grainy. Mm-hmm. the pieces that we recover uh, from um, the Argentine print that had the sort of full, uh, you know, hour and 20 some odd or two hour and 20 some odd minute version of the film. But uh, it's got sort of the Citizen Kane problem. Lots of style. And a lot of substance. I mean, it's doing a lot of stuff, and it's telling a lot of story here, but it's just a little bloated and a bit um, glacial in its pacing in places, and I do think that 115-minute version just cooks a little bit more. I don't know that this movie ever could be said to cook, but... Um, I think it rewards that sort of lo- uh, shorter runtime. Uh, I don't know. There. I'm
0: thinking, Dustin. I'm thinking of the faces of uh, all of the the, the rich guys when their their faces go all lecherous when they meet Robot Maria. I don't. I don't know. This this, yeah, this I mean, movie. Th- there are good bits. It cooks. It cooks sometimes. That's all I'm saying.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, oh, fair enough. But it doesn't really move at a, at a, at a speedy kind of pace. Mm, and so I think that's probably the issue there. Although some of Rotwang, the uh, the evil scientist's uh, motivations are sort of lost. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, that's his name. <laughs> yeah,
0: it is. it is. And I thought it was funny every time it showed up on screen. Sorry about
2: that.
1: But uh, for that being said, as we've already said, visual style wise, it works. It is a quintessential ex- ex- uh, example of German expressionism. That particular modernist style, and uh, for that I think it really really works and uh, again as in terms of plotting and just what the late 1920s could do in silent cinema uh, you have to, you have to remember that in the early 30s in the first introduction of sound film they don't quite know what to do with sound and they don't quite know how to sync up recording uh, the uh, the optical image alongside sound and so the camera gets really locked down, the camera moves here and another Uh, late 20s uh, silent film examples in ways that it won't move again for another 10 or 15 years. And so uh, there's a lot to like about what's happening in this film uh, in terms of just like a high point in uh, the visual expression. And I do think uh, what Hitchcock uh, termed pure cinema, where just the visual art just speaks viscerally to the person, happens in this film. And uh, again, so there's a lot to like there. And so I, I do find it moving. Um, as far as performances go, I think everyone's fine for the most part. Um, I do think uh, that uh, Bridget, what's her name? Let me Helm. find her name. Uh, Bridget Helm, yeah, she's great. As Maria? Uh, yeah, yeah as I, Maria, she's, got a,
0: she's got a double-jointed face. Yeah, she's incredible.
1: Yeah. Yeah, she and, is. And so she does a lot of good work there. Everybody else is just fine. So, uh, which is good. I mean, they they serve their purposes. I'm not saying anybody's bad or a weak link or anything like that. But she's really the only person I find as far as an actor goes, that stands out Mm -hmm. uh, in the whole of the film. Everybody else is just sort of just coming to work and doing their job. You know, they're not phoning it in, but they're definitely just, you know, just doing their job.
0: Yeah, I get so, hers. Her her performance does kind of transcend a lot of some of the other ones. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, I, I like a lot. I like the score. Um, and uh, again, the visual style, just the uh, the technological innovation of being able to integrate the mats and the various uh, pieces of moving cinema alongside mats throughout. Uh, it, it it is incredible, and use of animation. Uh, that's also really really a cutting edge stuff. So I mean, it's a special effects extravaganza for 1927. And uh really, I mean uh far ahead of even special effects stuff that we might see in something like King Kong in 1934. Uh and so it's it's incredible in that sense. But uh with the the version that we watched, a bit slow. And I think again it suffers from a Citizen Kane problem. Yes, slow, yes important, or yes uh innovative, yes important, yes uh foundational, also just a drag to watch. And I really felt that was the case. Uh, watching the long version uh, again uh, today for that. So that's my final verdict uh, as far as review goes at this point. So with that, friends, you know our biases concerning this film. Let's move on to our little exercise that we like to call Expanding the Syllabus. Dalton, can you tell us what that's all about?
0: Well, Dustin, normally expanding the syllabus is where we uh, deliver on the promise of this show, uh, where we we try to talk about the films you wouldn't discuss in a film studies course by uh, creating a fake course of some sort where we, uh, we say, hey, we would watch this movie and some other adjacent films and or uh, texts and uh, examine them uh, th- through an academic lens. As you've already said, this is in January. We're doing anti-trash. These are movies you would talk about in a film studies course. So, uh what sort of classes would you uh, teach Metropolis in, and uh, what, what are some of the materials you would present alongside it, I, I guess is the question we'll be asking.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that is exactly the question. And uh, with that in mind, I will go to you first, Arthur. What is your class looking like?
2: Uh, I think I would use this in a module uh, in a class either. It could be in classical Hollywood cinema where we're talking about filmmaking, um, or it could be in a formalist approach uh, thing. But I would talk about the close-up um because i think maria is introduced with a great close up uh it's it's that moment where she she walks in and freder uh sees her and we get that kind of tight medium close up of her uh and we much like him kind of fall uh, head over heels for her in that first instance uh which i think speaks to the power of a good close up um and how through editing uh can inform us what we want to feel, what we need to understand, how we should react uh to a moment. Uh so this would just be kind of a study of the close up and, and so I've pulled a few pieces uh to kind of uh complement that, I think. And so the first one, uh, which we've talked about on the show before an anti trash marathon is stagecoach and that introductory close up, uh that swooping in on John Wayne, uh, which is just such a great shot, uh Not only introducing us to that character, but also, in a way, introducing cinema to its new hero in John Wayne, uh, not only as stagecoach, but also as A-list movie star. Uh, I think it shows the power uh, of that, the way that sweeps in and emphasizes that larger-than-life kind of breaking out of the screen moment uh, for him. I think that's a a really powerful bit. Uh, Next up is actually 2001, A Space Odyssey. And it is those tight close-ups of Hal 9000. Yeah, baby. We'll
0: talk more about Hal and the good camera work around him next week, potentially.
2: Um, Because it is just a static shot of a red light, but the way it's edited together and the conversations around it, Make it so unsettling and uneasy and terrifying in many ways. And the way Kubrick is able to frame that with that close up of that light uh, is just so powerful that speaks to the importance of good editing, the importance of good staging, uh, and characterization through dialogue uh, in a way. Because everything we understand about Hal is just through either the kind Of static things he says without emotion or what his uh, shipmates are saying,
0: but it is also like the most overtly emotional character in, in that yeah. movie, he's, is the only character that talks about their emotions, yeah, like directly. Pretty interesting, yeah, that's cool.
2: Maybe. Uh, but we'll come back to that, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure we will. Uh, and then the next one is The Passion of Jean d'Arc. Uh, we got to talk mm. about those, uh, mm. those incredible close ups in The Passion of Joan of Arc and Carl T. H. Dreyer, uh, what he's doing there, and and the way that draws you in, and we can. Feel that empathy and that sympathy for that character, and just the incredible performance there, and the way that's framed uh, in those very tight close ups to really just kind of wash over us, and that really experiential element of cinema uh, through the close up. Uh, and then finally, I want to end with the Silence of the Lambs, and I want to talk about those mm-hmm. few close ups as uh, Starling and Lecter are talking and those back and forth discussions uh and how uh it puts us into the scene as audience member and puts us into the shoes of both of those characters in some uncomfortable ways at times uh and just the power of that and i i really think you know the the close up it's kind of a punchline in some ways for people you know i'm ready for my close up but uh it's obviously one of the oldest tricks uh but it's also uh i think maybe one of the more important tools uh in a filmmaker's toolbox if if it's utilized well. And so that's what I would do. It would just be kind of a formalist approach to the close-up. Uh, and that's where I would come in with this, I think.
1: Outstanding, outstanding. I like that very, very much. Thank you for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what is your class looking like?
0: Well, we're going to look about, uh, key in on some of the, the, the major themes of Metropolis, right? That This is obviously a film about inequality and wealth distribution. Uh, so we are going to look at the, the, the history of inequality in dystopian fiction, uh, examine this this recurring trope that we get throughout examinations of the future uh, and maybe maybe figure out why this is such a common thing we think about when we think about where humanity is going to end up um, so we'd of course look at this film uh, we'd look at uh, 1984 both uh, the novel and and the, the uh, very good movie version I, I like it quite a bit jonathan hurt uh we'd look at brazil a film very much indebted to to 1984 uh, we'd look at the comic book series Transmetropolitan uh, from Warren Ellis, a comic book series I like a lot. That's, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, a little little edge lordy in the way that some of that late 90s, early aughts, kind of auteurist comic book stuff can be. But I feel like by and large that it does a good job of being about something and not just, you know, being uh, edgy for its own sake. Uh, I also like the film Gattaca a lot. I think uh, it's not one we talk about very often because it is sort of a... Uh, uh, a 90s mid-level blockbuster but i think it's got a lot of interesting stuff we can play around with uh, again the idea of genetic inequality uh being very interesting and it allows us to talk about medical inequality i, I think it's, it's really valuable stuff there uh, and finally a film that i need to catch up with uh Hoyo, uh the platform uh the netflix movie from spain uh, about a, a a super futuristic prison with a floating platform that delivers food to people and Uh, again a very on its face uh deliberate metaphor or allegory for inequality but a movie i've heard a lot about uh it sounds gross as hell which is part of why i haven't watched it uh but i am interested in it uh so again those are some of the 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 films we'd look at but we would also look at some some writing from uh you know um oh god what's the snow crash guy what's his name no, it's not important. Uh oh William Gibson, that's not snow crash I don't think. William Gibson and some of the other um you know early cyberpunk authors though uh recently kind of got together and were like uh-oh did we were we too glum did we accidentally write the dystopia into existing, existence? Uh, and I don't think that's an interesting question uh, that that science fiction authors were uh, asked themselves recently. Um, there was apparently a little quorum they had to get together to talk about uh, maybe writing new futures and less dystopian ones. Uh, I wish I could give you more details about that, but uh, something I only... I, I've said uh, all that I know, and some of what I've said I'm not sure that I know. Uh, but anyway, I, I think it is interesting that we always come back to this spot. We, we look at the human condition as it is, and whether it's 1927 and, and the film Metropolis, or whether it's 2013 and Neil Blomkamp's Elysium, we we cannot stop seeing the stratifications in our society, and, and cannot stop wondering how much worse can this get before somebody says enough is enough? Before we agree as a group, this is enough. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's very interesting. I think it says a lot about our uh, the, the cycles that we find ourselves in as a species. That we uh, have been asking ourselves this question in art for truly much longer than film has existed. But I mean, just using a couple of novel and film examples, I think we can can see that uh, at least for the last century or so, this has really been stuck in our craw uh,
1: as a species
0: and something we can't quite figure
1: out. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, What I would do with this particular film is if I was teaching, I mean, there's a number of classes I could be teaching, but I would almost envision it more in a class on um, stylistic movements in cinema. And so there might be a module on this, a module on surrealism, a module on film noir, on various kinds of slow cinema, transcendental cinema, um, a number of things that you could do there in terms of like these sort of cinematic, idiosyncratic kind of styles uh, that sort of emerge over uh, the last century and a little bit of change uh, of cinema. And so uh, in the German Expressionist piece, I think this is a good film to use. And then alongside that film, uh, there's a brilliant little short film by Robert Flory um, called, uh, and I've talked about it before on the show, and I'm going to pull up the, because it's got numbers in the title, the, the Life and Death of 9413, colon, A Hollywood Extra, which I think stylistically does some of the same kinds of things, but does it in much less time and uh, does it in a way that is uh I think really, really interesting. So, uh, nine, four, three, one is, uh, again, a great little expressionist film. Uh, the runtime on it is not very long. Let me just check here real quick. 11 minutes. Oh, okay. Uh, so
0: yeah. <laughs> nice and breezy.
1: Yeah. Very breezy. And, um, maybe as a suggestion to, uh, hair long, uh, what maybe he should have done, uh, instead, uh, Dr. Long, I'm sorry. I mistured him. Didn't he? He didn't spend, you know, seven years in evil doctor school to be called uh, Mr. <laughs> uh, but uh, so there's that. And then I would go flashing forward to Alex Proyas's Dark City. Nice. Okay. As sure. A, another science fiction expressionist uh, venture there. And uh, thinking about it in terms of reading, I think we'd read from Hitler to Caligari uh, by Siegfried Krakauer, who talks a lot about the style and some of its politics and probably a, a thesis that has been sort of, Passed over that, uh, the, that what we see in this in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and in Nosferatu and some of these other films is something that sort of anticipates the coming of uh Hitler and uh, of the rise of fascism in Germany. Again, that's that's sort of a papo thesis now, but I think it's an interesting idea, uh, from its particular moment, uh, that these uh cinemas lend themselves to the rise of fascism in interesting ways. And we might even talk about uh, Krakow's thesis a little bit when we get down to analysis here. But uh, I think that would be fun. And to have this be a little sort of mini-module here about expressionism, I might do a second week of it and uh, look at some other expressionist films and uh, think about them and maybe the connection to Alfred Hitchcock and some other uh, filmmakers as well. But uh, if I was just going to use just the long bits, that's where I'd go with it. Uh, for that as a class so there you are dear listener your syllabus just got much longer Uh, with that I do think though it's time to get down to business
2: it's business
1: That's right, dear listener, and that business is as always analysis. Um, shall we talk about style and homages, maybe first? Because I think this is a modernist film in expressionism, and yet we can see that this film is super influential and in how often is pastiched, homaged, or parodied uh, in later works of uh film uh one of the things that i thought about first of all which is sort of an obscure reference is just a year or so later harold lloyd's uh got a film uh called safety last in which uh famously he hangs from the clock yeah uh and i just i thought a lot about that image and the image of fighting the uh the arms of the clock there and how almost immediately this film becomes super duper influential uh the probably the most obvious and easy to recognize place of this sort of postmodern parody is the android itself right uh which is Mm c3po for days yeah um i don't know uh again so half the fun in uh doing that kind of postmodern homage thing is just identifying the bits did you guys see any other bits in this film that you felt were uh being referenced and reused in other films that were i mean that note.
0: That skyline, I, I think, is is so striking. Um, you know, we get a couple of establishing shots of mm-hmm. Metropolis, and and we see these these gargantuan highways and these these huge towers, uh, and it definitely makes you think about Blade Runner and, and all these other fu- futuristic cityscapes that that would come to uh, define our popular culture. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's it's hard not to see the places where this this movie uh, has influenced. Uh, a, a, least uh science fiction but really a lot of genre movie making in general
1: yeah absolutely and so i you know i was just thinking like this film was picking up pieces and using them like Harold lloyd and and then other pieces are using it you know in the future and again that's sort of like the influential sort of power of the movie and we and like you were saying just a moment ago dalton we've been telling these kinds of stories in cinema for a hot minute now i mean matrix is in the air right
0: Mm, mm-hmm, and
1: sure. uh so there's a very much sort of a matrixy kind of idea there where the machines are running us and
0: yeah well, it's got that machines are running us quality and i, I you know not to both films you know th- this film predates a, a pretty intense thing about to happen in uh, german history and uh, i think you know the matrix predates some pretty intense things happening in american history and it is just so interesting that they both have a a History on the edge of change quality to them, if that makes sense
2: Mm-hmm. um one of the things i uh I was thinking about was Frankenstein uh you know uh especially in that, you know, that transference of Maria to the machine that that whole lab setup mm-hmm. kind of recalls i think the the monster's creation
0: yeah and i i i'm pretty sure I remember reading in some of my research that uh Shelley what was an inspiration for uh for Lang and, and his wife the Theona mm-hmm. braun uh not braun uh. Anyway, Harbor. There we go. Jeez, Thievon Harbor. Um, but uh, th- th- so that makes sense that uh, that that, made, that registered for you. Yeah, I, I, it's such a <laughs> cartoon care- cartoon drawing of a mad scientist's lab, but I love it. I, yeah, I, it I, is. I don't mean that as a as a slight against the movie. I think the production design of that lab is great. But yeah, it, it does very much feel like a uh, you know it's it's an alive it's a live sequence rather. There we go.
1: Well, yeah, and one of the connections that I was going to make in my syllabus in the class is, you know, Robert Flory also working in that kind of expressionistic mode, uh wrote the first screenplay treatment for the uh, cinematic adaptation of Frankenstein for Universal.
0: Oh, okay. And
1: uh and so uh, and I actually have a copy of his uh shooting script uh here in my library and uh that's I think another set of interesting connections. I mean, I think that you're you're wise to put uh point out there. Because uh, there's a there's a way in which uh, expressionism lends itself very well to uh, sort of well trod areas of genre filmmaking. You know what, what will become genre filmmaking, which don't even exist right now. The horror film, and then later the science fiction film. And, well, and how
0: many movies are there? Again, if we're we just keep on the android, because again, I think the android is so iconic. When we talk, you talk about the movie Metropolis. Uh, how many we made a lady movies are there? Uh, at least uh, X Machina and Weird Science come to mind.
2: <laughs> there's a there's a tight close up here of uh, the what is it the Machine Minch, I think is, mm-hmm. is what they call it, uh, and it looks really similar to uh, what's the character name in Guardians of the Galaxy two? Oh yeah, Debicki.
0: Yeah, the Elizabeth Debicki's character. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the, Nebula.
2: No, no, no not no. Nebula. It's, uh, it's Karen Gillian's characters. Uh, oh the high priestess what's her name yeah she's gold oh aisha, um, aisha there we yeah go. i mean yeah, look yeah, yeah.
0: yeah i mean totally i hear very, what you're saying now yeah for yeah. 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 sure yeah that that's absolutely a direct that has nod. to be uh an intentional nod i mean yeah, yeah. come on that's yeah right for there. sure
1: on its face yeah absolutely um, I also find it really interesting uh, the use of the various biblical stories. Uh, yeah, to, it's it's to... interesting, like how heavily this film
0: th- that is about technology in a lot of ways it is so much rooted in uh, deep human history, right? How much it leans on uh, mythology and, and theology.
2: Well, the, I mean, especially the Tower of Babel, right? I mean, yeah. those parallels of going well, like, too far well, and yeah. how far can man go before being knocked down?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and uh, we, I think, and the seven deadly sins, of course, coming mm-hmm. in as as these these kind of anthropomorphized anthropomorphized characters for a bit.
1: I found it really interesting that what Long was doing was a was a heavily Judaic reading of the Tower of Babel as well. Uh, one of the things that sometimes gets lost in Christian uh, interpretation of that particular story is that the technology that's developed by Nimrod and those who are in, sort of in charge. Of building the tower of Babel is the uh, the brick, right? Which is a, a useful building tool, obviously, but the it is also the product of uh, Hebrew enslavement in uh, the Book of Exodus. The reason why Pharaoh keeps the uh, Hebrew slaves is so that they can build the bricks, right? And and so you know, long making that particular interpretive move, which is much more you know rabbinical than it is Christian. Uh, I find it really fascinating as I think about Krakauer's sort of uh, interpretation of the rise of fascism. Of course, fascism does not necessarily require anti-Semitism to be in place there, but there's uh, something uh, thoroughly Semitic in his reading there that um, I, 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 again, I I find to be really kind of a fascinating sort of counterpoint or nuance.
0: Yeah, this Uh, idea that it focuses more on the the exploitation of industry, less on the... uh... the hubris hubris and idolatry yeah 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 that is very interesting um is there anything else that like registers really free i mean it is interesting to me that like the workers movement is a spiritual one in this movie right like Mm -hmm. what organization of workers we have is it's not quite a union although it sort of has some sort of union-esque uh iconography going on just in that it's a group of laborers gathered together but but really it is more of a church sermon than anything that we get as far as you know maria being down with the workers uh interesting i i don't know that i have anything else to add to it but i i do think at the very least it's it's interesting from you know uh, obviously uh, this film predates liberation theology uh, from south america by about 50 years but uh, it, it is pretty well you know 50 years 40 years whatever uh, but but it's interesting to me just this this idea that um that the, the workers' organization would be so rooted in, in a uh, spiritual need for uh, something more than than this world is offering them.
1: Yeah, it's it's contemporary with the worker-priest movement and mm-hmm. anticipates in some ways where the Catholic workers' movement is sort of all a Dorothy Day. And yeah, it that's, does that's, feel that's, a that's, lot more Dorothy Day than it does Karl Marx, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
0: Which is interesting. Again, I, I, obviously, you, you mentioned that this is contemporary with some sort of adjacent ideas, which is good. I didn't have that background, but but you're right; it is sort of heralding things to come, and and sort of this this conversation.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess we might as well go ahead and sort of hit the big animal there. The reason why this movie doesn't quite work in terms of its uh, thematic or theoretical. Uh, sort of idea, because it sounds like uh, the movie anticipates the problem that DC Comics has always had, and that's what Metropolis just needs uh, Batman. And uh, that <laughs> the idea that we need Mitt Romney to save us. Yeah,
0: you simply need a, a rich industrialist son who uh, wants, wants to be the, the sweet baby. He wants to be the Jesus Christ for the workers. Uh, he wants to be the Buddha. Uh, yeah, it, it is sort of a... Uh it's interesting you know it it definitely speaks to uh fritz lang still being a rich guy you know what i mean Mm -hmm. he's still a a, a successful uh industrialist as artist uh and so his his view of of workers is still one that's very paternalistic and it needs a a guiding hand a civilized hand to stop it from being you just say you know anarchic violence against the system
1: because well, that's, I mean, his, that's
0: his assumption, right? His assumption is that undirected workers' movement is a violent one.
1: Right. And it's, I mean, you know, you can find other sort of, uh, you know, Frankfurt School sort of writers that discuss this kind of idea in terms of messianism, this idea that we need uh, someone who has already authority and power and privilege to uh, be uh, a benefactor to mm-hmm. uh, the, the lower classes, rather than the lower classes being able to liberate themselves, Which I I do think is a sort of fundamental problem, you know, of the film. And, you know, I mean, a theoretical problem that's been identified over and over and over again is because what what ends up happening is you pedestalize anybody and you're going to see the cracks very quickly. And uh, they're never sufficient, right?
0: Well, I mean, yeah, and it ends on this handshake deal, right? It, it, which presupposes that well, this was all just a big misunderstanding. Freighter's father just didn't realize uh, how sucky it was to run Metropolis from from the lower uh,
2: from the lower levels. was yeah. just get him an air conditioner.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Oh, oh they they just needed brakes. Oh, okay. Well, you guys could stop peeing in bottles. That's if that was what the whole thing was about. Then it's fine. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah exactly as though if they had that information they would immediately like oh well yeah let's fix that yeah which obviously is not the case
0: of course of course it's not i guess that's why i I find the movie to be kind of whatever right is i i I don't know there were much more uh in-depth analyses of economic conditions going on at the time and you know decades prior to this film coming out right it's like it's not like the ideas that this movie presented were new in 1927 uh they had been going on since at least the uh the 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 notion that there was something amiss with the global economic systems had been around since at least the 1860s right it it wasn't a new idea um and and again the the economic systems that were in place to, to allow a film like metropolis to happen both like logistically and thematically those go back at least 500 years right so it's it's not you know Karl marx is a not quite contemporary with this movie but even like pre-marxian ideologies like i don't know i'm rambling a little bit but it's it's all to say that i i just uh, i find the movie's analysis to be so thin because it just says well all you need was a nice rich guy that's all you needed there was a benevolent king
1: (laughs) of course why didn't anybody think of that before so I guess this does raise the question then a little bit, because, you know, Krakauer is very, very critical of this film, and Nosferatu and Cabinet of Dr. Caligari in the same kinds of ways. What's his beef
0: uh, with expressionism? Why does he think it leads to fascism? It, well, and I, as, quick a, you can, as quickly as you can tell us, I'm sure it's an, a complicated answer.
1: Well, it's a it's, it's desire for strong and authoritative kind of leadership, right? Mm, that Cesar okay. needs to have Caligari running his show. And that and that's in Dr. Caligari, and that the citizens of metropolis they desperately need Freder and Freder's father to sort of rise up and be the one good leader to, that we're going to well, to use the Batman argument uh, that we need Caesar to take those emergency powers uh, mm. to get us out of this crisis and i, I do think to, to I mean there's a reason why uh Krakow arrived at that conclusion. I mean obviously Hitler did happen. And obviously this film does resolve itself by not establishing democracy or something more egalitarian, but by again sort of revesting that power uh with these sort of, you know what's the word I'm looking for? These qualifiers uh into how that power is going to be used. Caesar's gonna take these emergency powers uh for the sake of the barbarians at the gates, right? Mm-hmm. Um and, and so, you know, Batman can Uh, snoop all of our privacy and violate all of our Fifth Amendment rights and Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights um, as much as uh, needed because we have a madman to take care of. And so we have this sort of crisis in terms of humanization for labor. And uh, so what we need is someone who's going to be in charge of the laborers to say, okay, I will set fair things down. That way you can all do your jobs and fill my pockets in a way that's a little more humanizing uh, than once it was. And so there's there's a ghost of what Krakauer seems to suggest there i think uh with the film is that you know they are sort of uh it is a film that seems to long for strong leadership rather than egalitarian democracy is that is that you guys sense as well yeah
0: i mean i'd say that it's a fair read uh it, at the very least it, it again I, paternalistic is the word that keeps coming to mind for me and it definitely it, it, assumes that the masses need a controlling force right and and that that definitely does not necessarily Mm -hmm. evoke something that is a totally egalitarian or democratic
1: right i think the problem with krakauer's uh thesis mostly is that it's a sort of symptomatic reading of these particular films but these particular films do not represent the glut of films that were being produced in germany during the weimar period Totally, and they were not insanely popular either
0: well, it's, it's like when we, uh, we talk about, and I, again, we're, I know we've already name checked the matrix on this episode, but it's when we, like, when we talk about 1999 in the film, right? As this, like, this heralding moment of, of something around the corner. It's like, yeah, there's also, that's, that's also us, like, reading the tea leaves in retrospect a little bit, right? Because there's plenty mm-hmm. of shit in 1999 that is just standard Hollywood fare, um, so I, I think that it's any any time you're trying to do that, right, that you're trying to say, well, this this artistic moment clearly uh, heralds this coming uh, thing in the the decade to come. Well, you're, you're always kind of cheating a little bit. And I, I say that that's a fair critique of of hour's thesis, knowing only what you've told us about it.
1: Right. Well, I would say that the 1999 argument actually holds more water because it's using films like Office Space and The Matrix and uh, American Beauty and uh, films that a lot of people saw as opposed to, I mean, you could say you, if you were making that argument using like Guy Madden films. That's that's sort of the equivalent to what Krakauer doing. He's he's not looking at blockbusters. Mm. He's looking at these sort of small um, artistic films that are, again, well lauded and well recognized, I think, overall, but not really overwhelmingly popular well that's the
0: thing that's oh go ahead sorry i
1: mean and and so the difference is that there are definitely artistic uh uh sort of gestures that are made in a movie like the matrix but it's still popcorn fare
0: yeah Mm -hmm. totally well and i I was thinking of films like uh uh, you didn't mention this one but another film from that era uh, fight club right that is sort Mm -hmm. of mixed in its reception and isn't like a, a huge box office success at the time um but uh, again you you're right there people saw those other movies that we were talking about uh it, it is interesting though that some of them were huge hits and some of them were were sort of cult growers uh, but to, to talk about blockbusters that, that's a thing that i find kind of interesting about the history of, of metropolis is its its sort of proto blockbuster status right they they knew that they needed to drum up excitement for this movie which is why there was a you know a two year prior to the film coming out novelization right like it, th- that existed uh, that that aspect of it existed because uh, Lang and, and his wife uh, Thea knew that they wanted to get people hyped up about this movie, and it wasn't a very big hit when it came out. Uh, people didn't know quite what to make of this this kind of event movie, both critics and audiences. You know, it wasn't the huge success that they wanted it to be, and and uh, it was sort of critically mixed when when it came out. And I just find that so interesting that one of the first blockbusters is everybody kind of through it, a sideways glance, and we're like, eh, I don't know if that's what we want movies to be. And I, I just find that absolutely fascinating when our current model is that's all, like, everybody's trying to make that kind of movie, at least in, in the uh, American system, anyway.
1: Right. Well, and the problem, I think, again, that Krakauer has, uh, of those films, I think Metropolis is probably the most popular one. And it relies much more heavily on Caligari and Dr. Mabuse and uh, some of the, uh, Durgolam, and some of these other films that are really much less seen and continue mm. to be much less seen uh Mabus and Dergolem especially um i have seen um Nosferatu but i haven't seen those other two films and uh, you know in uh, uh you, this is Herbert. the first time
0: he, this is the first time hearing of either of them so yeah it definitely uh makes you wonder how much uh, weight that argument holds for uh for well as you've said that it's it's sort of a a hypothesis that most people have pooed at this point right yeah yeah um i just want to talk about the making of this movie uh like some more just like what what a j- undertaking it was do you know how many extras this thing had? we're talking like thousands of people for so sure i get why there's so many scenes of people running they really wanted to show off how many damn people they got <laughs> into the into the picture and well, that's uh, fair well of course it is totally fair uh it sucks that it, it meant like taking several hundred uh poor children and sticking them in freezing cold water uh he the water had to be cold guys uh, it's very it? important that the water had to be cold can't
2: have warm water can't have warm water
0: thanks you know? jeff no the the actors have to be cold it's very important to the process
1: well expression is about showing suffering right they must suffer <laughs> to show suffering they can't act it's
2: called method acting <laughs> <laughs>
1: But
0: but uh, outside of that, like, it's wild how good this movie looks. And, and it really just goes to show. I'm, I'm, I know I'm ranting and raving about miniatures on this show all the time, and I definitely will do it some it's more It's a lost week. art. It's, dude, I'm telling you. It's so good. When you see a miniature these days, it just makes me so happy. Whether, yeah. you know, I mean, obviously, it's, hey, it's time to talk about Dune. Man, those models are so mm-hmm. cool. That that movie just looks incredible. And, you know, Denis is helping keep the art of movie miniatures alive between that and Blade Runner. I mean, obviously there's other productions over the last couple of years that have used them, but you just used to, that. That was the special effect you had that yeah. you had to use that special effect because you couldn't make a cityscape in a computer. So you had to build one. Uh, and it turns out physical items age better than polygons. They just do. Yeah. Um, and, and And to see these skylines, it just makes you think like, wow, we really like even early on in movies, we were able to pull off some just like truly jaw dropping stuff. Yeah. yeah. It, it really does make you marvel at the, the magic trick that is making a movie. Uh, the, this film is just like full of imagery that is, I, I can't imagine trying to, them trying to do it a, a hundred years ago. It just makes me go, huh? A little bit.
1: Well, and I think the painstaking nature of just uh, putting together those uh, miniatures alongside. Uh, those scenes where you have actors before them or behind them, mm-hmm. and you know, additional matte paintings. The way in which that was done, again, was not done digitally inside a computer. Somebody with a razor blade took every single frame of the film and they cut along the lines and they put them and, re- and glued it back together. I mean, that's an insane process mm-hmm. to go through yeah. and uh, just uh, super, super labor intensive, uh, which is an interesting thing to think about in a film that's sort of about the suffering of labor.
0: Yeah. Again, and that—that's why I do find, at the end of the day, I, I find it to be a, a failure as far as a, a critique of any uh, system of exploitation because it is an exploitative movie. Uh, it, it's a movie that exploited its actors and, and treated them like shit. And uh, the fact that Fritz Lang can't see the delineation between what he's doing to his workplace uh, because he's an artiste, uh, and like what is going on in the text of Metropolis, like the fact that he either can't see that or saw it and chose to just ignore it makes him a bad person. Maybe I'm going to go ahead and put a question mark on makes him a bad person. I will say it makes the movie less effective as a piece of, uh, of societal critique. Absolutely.
1: I'm, I'm sure Lang thought that um, by getting the message out there, He was uh, breaking a few eggs to make an omelet,
0: Mm -hmm. and that isn't that all. What all of these great men of history like to say about themselves, right? Yeah, that's that's sort of where I come down on it. I I, again, I I appreciate everything that we have here, but as you say, it is it is exploitative at the end of the day. Not not all, just I mean, truly, motion pictures in general uh, can be an exploitative business and industry. But this this particular one, you know, that we got receipts. We we know it was not a fun place to be. Uh, people did interviews just like they do today, and uh, it, it was not an easy movie to be a part of. It was uh, one of the only movies that uh, Maria did. Right? Did I see that right? No, I'm thinking of another story. I think.
2: Yeah, she had a little bit of a career. Yeah, I'm
0: thinking of something else. But uh, it, it's you know the the actor who was in the robot was not the same actor that played Maria, and yeah, had nothing but terrible things
1: to say about the experience. That's fair. Entirely fair. Well, I think with that, we probably are at a good place here where we can probably render a verdict on this film uh, as to whether or not it is uh, lauded as it should be or does it actually belong in the trash. Shelf or trash is our choice. I go to you first, Arthur. What do you say about Metropolis?
2: Well, I'm not going to tell you to trash Metropolis. That's (laughs) kind of absurd. Uh, But I am going to tell you to shelf the short version.
1: (laughs) Fair. Okay. All right. Well, what do you say, Dalton?
0: Yeah, I. I. What am I going to do? Tell you to trash a movie that we thought was lost to history for a little bit? Yeah, I simply cannot do that. I will say it belongs on the shelf of a library. You don't need to own this movie. You should probably catch up with it at some point in your life if you consider yourself a cinephile, um, or or even just an appreciator of science fiction. Right? You don't even necessarily don't even necessarily need to be a film head for this one. Uh, You should catch up with it. But yeah, this is not a a mandatory part of uh, a casuals collection. This is is a piece of uh, history, a piece of academia. It's, you know, it's places on things like the Criterion Channel or a canopy, right? Like it it belongs in a, a catalog. It belongs in an archive. You don't have to
1: own this movie. I mean, that's exactly what I was going to say as well, Dalton, is that absolutely you should not shelf this film, but you, it's ubiquitous. You can find it everywhere, and yeah. uh, it's easily streamable, and that's exactly how you should go ahead and consume this piece of media. And I would suggest for most uh, listeners, if you're listening to a movie podcast, you're, you're into movies at this yeah. point. So this is a movie that's worth catching, um, but don't buy it in order to do so. I mean, if you're an instructor and you know you've got need or whatever for that that might be a slightly different story but for uh the standard sort of movie podcast a uh, listener i would say this is definitely not a shelfer uh it's definitely a streamer hey dustin so, i, I want
0: to throw something at you real quick as we're yes wrapping. Uh, just because I'll, I'll regret it if i don't bring it up i think one thing that's interesting i don't know if either of you have any any uh, thoughts on this i just think it's an interesting aspect of the film uh, something that I, I think its critique does get right is uh, the, the hijacking of revolutionary movements by the elite, which uh, I think is re- a really fascinating subplot in this. That Fredder's father uh, gets Maria. You know, we, we didn't really get much into the fact that the robot is turned into a Maria doppelganger, uh, who's sent back into the the bowels of Metropolis to sow seeds of discontent. But uh, pretty interesting stuff. Like that. That's a moment where I, I find. The, the critique of this film to be really well well observed uh it's it's pretty smart and ahead of its time in that regard for me
1: oh well i think so um and i think also this idea that what the uh evil maria is saying is a a, a bit less pragmatic right it, it, it's much more throwing a monkey wrench in things instead of just simply protesting perhaps striking i think striking seems almost to be a, a bridge too far uh in you know the proto maria or real life biological maria mm-hmm. in her mind and so the methodologies are like well that's not yes things are bad but let's let's be practical here people got to make money and uh let's not go too far and so part of what that uh co-option and hijacking of those movements is about is about mediating the level of uh, dissent well, mediating descent, dissent
0: mediating it, but also ratcheting it up sometimes. Right. Ratcheting it up into violent dissent mm-hmm. so that the powers that be are justified in having a violent response.
1: Well, that, yeah, exactly. So evil Maria does the bad thing. Right. Yeah. And the bad thing is going to just result in awful crackdown. So we obviously we can't do what evil Maria suggests right
0: it's it's again it's it's a that's one of the more nuanced uh ideas that the film presents that makes me go okay this is some pretty good stuff going on here
1: mm-hmm.
0: but anyway i just want to make sure we got to that uh is there anything else? you know what dustin i'm gonna let you do this if people have more thoughts on this film it's a dense movie there's a lot we could have talked about that we probably didn't get to how can people get in touch with us to keep the conversation going
1: I mean, an easy and quick way if you happen to already live there on the world of the Twitter, and we all understand that it is a scary, scary, purgatorial place in which you may not want to reside. But you can find us at Good Trash Media there. You can also send us long form feedback at Good Trash Media uh, at gmail.com. Uh, Actually, final... I
0: believe that's uh, Good Trash genrecast at gmail.com, oh. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we've, we've got the podcast name on the the old email address.
1: Oh, there you go. Well, Good Trash Genrecast at gmail.com. Thank you for that correction. And then um, you can also find us at we have a patreon as well which is uh what is that at patreon that's
0: patreon.com forward slash gtm
1: gtm see i don't that's why i don't do this because i don't actually know what those uh addresses are yeah see it's
0: a harder job than i get credit for it's all i'm saying i'm so
1: proud of you uh um, with that i think we're gonna do another movie in this marathon arthur what is that gonna be
2: uh, I think we'll do one more, and I think that uh, next week uh, we're going to journey into space to experience the dawn of man, as we fly away with 2001: A Space Odyssey. I'm sorry, Arthur. I simply
0: can't pod that.
2: Oh no! Oh no! He's turning <laughs> the red.
0: Pod bay doors.
1: <laughs> no, we simply
0: won't be opening any doors. <laughs>
1: all right. Well, you keep watching. We'll keep talking. And we'll see you all next time
2: i